Good morning, Grace Church. I'm Bill Borseth. I have the pleasure of serving as one of your elders here at Grace. And this morning, I want to just introduce us to what we'll be doing um, for the next few weeks on Sunday mornings together. So we'll be starting a new mini-series on holiness. So we'll be studying the holiness of God. We'll be studying how we can access that holiness and then practical, practicality in holiness. Um, and this morning, to kind of kick that off, um, we're going to read Psalm 99 together. So if you could all please stand to your feet, and I will read. Psalm 99, the psalmist says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Heavenly Father, God, we pray over the course of these next weeks and continuing on in our Christian journeys that you would make us to be holy. God, you've commanded us in Leviticus and 1 Peter and elsewhere to be holy just as you are holy. And God, we know that naturally we are broken and sinful creatures, but through the power of Christ, God, we can become more like him. We can pursue your holiness. We ask that you would give us a hunger and a desire, God, for holiness above all else through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Bill. Welcome. Good to see everyone this morning. And uh, thankfully, we're going to get above 20 degrees today. It's going to seem like a heat wave, isn't it? So we're glad about that. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and we will get there in just a minute. I'm giving three weeks to a short series beginning this morning about holiness. And today, I'm beginning with just the holiness of God. I'm calling the sermon, Perfect in Holiness, God. We're going to look at the one passage. We're going to refer to another passage. But I have to admit a couple of things this morning uh, before uh, we really get started in this. And that is this. First, the holiness of God uh, and this subject matter should be a series much, much longer than the one I'm giving to it this morning because it's just endless. And then second, I am woefully under-equipped to describe and reveal the holiness of God. I just want you to know that. I'm, I'm going to use the best words I can, and I'm going, to, I'm going to reveal to you the best way that I can the holiness of God, but I'm woefully under-equipped to do such a thing. With my limited intellect and tools, it's like me taking a toothpick to Mount Everest, or it's like trying to empty the Pacific with a teacup. It's just, it's just impossible. And here's what I do know. I know this, that the most oft-repeated self-description of God in the Scripture, the way that He describes Himself the most, is holy. 
holy, holy, holy. He is holy. We better figure it out because it's the way that God describes himself. So what is holy? What is holiness? I may even have a harder time with the definition of that, to be honest. Whatever it means, I know this, I know that when we start talking about holiness, people get nervous. In fact, Christians get nervous when we begin to talk about the holiness of God. Let me try uh, to define it uh, just uh, briefly this morning, and, uh, and then we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and see about the encounter that Isaiah had with the holiness of God. To be holy means this. It means to be set apart, separate, different, unlike. And when we're talking about God's holiness, we're talking about His absolute purity, He is unstained by sin and evil. He is perfect in every way, and he is perfectly good all the time. God is totally different than anything that we can imagine. He's holy. God is transcendent. He's apart from his creation. He's imminent. He's present with all of his creation. David said, where can I go from your presence? That isn't this. It isn't that God follows us everywhere. It's that he is already present everywhere we might choose to go. I could go on with many attributes of God, like his omniscience and his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his justice, his love, his wrath, his goodness, his self-existence, eternal nature, his infinitude, his immutability, and many, many more. But in all of these things, God is holy. In all of his attributes, he is holy in those attributes. His love, grace, mercy, and justice, and his wrath are holy. I know in this modern world we live in a God who is holy in his love. How could he be holy in his wrath? How could a loving God ever be wrathful? We don't, it doesn't fit in our thinking. And so he is this, he is different. He is always who he is in holiness. He is different than man. He is different than our imaginations of him. He is unlike idols. He is not at all like anything. It cannot enter into our mind. In fact, we're going to relate the true, invisible, invisible God who is holy. We're going to relate him to something that we've seen, something that's created or made, even if we try. He is not like anything that we can talk about. He is perfect in holiness. His love is holy. His goodness is holy. His power is holy. His wisdom is holy. Holy is the Lord. We read it a moment ago, Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. God is holy. Okay, pastor, you're, you're getting carried away already this morning. We hadn't even gotten into the Bible passage yet. Well, folks, I want to say to us this morning that because we do not have the right view of God, here is the place that we have arrived. The Bible says we have, and that is there is no fear of God in our eyes. Romans 3.18 says that, but it's quoting all the way back in Psalm 36, verse 1. What have we done? Well, we've begun to try to reduce God to a manageable size and power. We want to get God at a place where we can use him or at least know where we can find him when we need him. We sometimes look at God like a genie in a lamp that we rub up through prayer and ask for three wishes or ten. The fundamental fact of our faith is God. The fundamental fact about God is, is that God is holy. God is awful. God is majestic. God is fearful. God is mighty. God is awesome. God is a consuming fire. 
He is other than what we can ever imagine. And I don't think we can understand all of the, I don't think we do or can we completely, but we should strive to understand the holiness of God. Once again, stand to your feet. Let me read very quickly this passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter six. And I'm going to read it to you this morning. We've already had a reading and we don't want to belabor the point, but I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Father, help us as we dive in and delve into the the truth of your holiness. And I pray, Father, that we would we would take a long lingering gaze both as a congregation and as individuals at you, at your person, at your greatness. Please help us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we have a record here of Isaiah's call and commission. It's very, very unique. And we need to understand the times in which he received this call and this view of the holiness of God. Now, I'm not going to read it, but if you were to look back to chapter 5, the previous chapter... These are kind of the signs of the times. These are the times in which Isaiah was living and the times in which Uzziah was the king and also in the times which he died. Verse number eight says it was a time of greed and personal insulation from others, buying land, adding land to land so that you could dwell alone in the middle of the land and push people away. It was a time of greed and wealth. Verses 11 to 12, the first part says it was a time of wine and drunkenness and wild parties. Verse number 12, the second part says it was a time of willful ignorance about spiritual things. Verse number 18 says it was a time of unbridled wickedness where people didn't know how to apply the brakes on sin. Verse 20 says it was a time for the redefinition of terms. Good was evil and evil was good. Verse 21 says it was a time of self-acclaimed wisdom and knowledge. We even carry smartphones in our pocket. Verse number 22, it was a time when being able to handle strong drink made you a hero. Verse number 23, it was a time when justice was up for sale. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does that, any of that sound familiar to you? This is the kind of the times in which this man Isaiah saw the Lord. It's the time when Uzziah died. And folks, it was a, it was a time for a fresh vision of God. 
Now I want to tell you, if there's ever been a time for a fresh vision of the holiness of God, it's right now for us. First Chronicles chapter 26 and following relates the story of a mostly good king who, had, who began being king in Judah at the age of 16, and he reigned for 52 years, an inordinately long period of, of, of peace in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. The ten tribes of the north had already fallen in 722 to the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom was experiencing a great time of peace and prosperity, mainly because of the good administration and leadership of King Uzziah also known as Azariah. He made great advances there in Judah in agriculture, and he reinforced the city walls of Jerusalem. He built up other defenses. He developed commerce to the point that Jerusalem was in the best shape that it had been in since King Solomon. The people experienced a great sense of security and prosperity, largely due to the vision, the direction, and the leadership of a good king. But King Uzziah died. He died. People die. Good government runs its course. Good circumstances don't last forever. And it was this situation. It was in this situation that God revealed himself to Isaiah. And so what did Isaiah experience? Well, I want you to notice some the elements of a life-changing vision in the life of Isaiah. And I, I just pray as we look at these things, we talk about it this morning, this could be a sermon that would linger with you. Because everything that the Lord needs to do in your heart is not going to happen in the next 20 minutes. It's just not. I'm going to give you some thoughts and pull out the scripture to you and beg God. I'm going to beg God to come down with strength and power by the Holy Spirit in the lives of each and every believer in the room today. But I, it's not all going to happen right now. And if we just walk out the door and switch it off and not think about it anymore and just go get coffee and get a hamburger, it's not going to do us any good. We really need to look at God, see him. If there's ever any hope of a revival in our midst, in our church, in our state, in our nation, we need a revival. What are the elements of a life-changing vision? Well, first of all, first word, sights. He saw things. He saw a glorious vision. What did he see? He saw God on his throne. Now, prophets like Isaiah, lived under the same circumstances as did the people to whom they prophesied. Isaiah saw what was happening among his people, all the things that were in chapter 5. He saw what was happening, but in his mind, as long as good King Uzziah was around, they had hope. So when King Uzziah died, he too was devastated when Uzziah died. But it was only when the king died where he had placed his hope only when the king died did he see the Lord. He saw the Lord. The word Lord, capital L, small, lowercase o-r-d, Lord is almost always the word Adonai in the scripture, and it means sovereign. In verse 3, you're going to see the word Lord again, but it's not capital L and lowercase o-r-d, but all caps. All uppercase, L-O-R-D, and that's the word Yahweh, the word I am. And so we have this, this Lord sovereign I am is the one that he saw. You know, kings are called sovereigns, but human sovereigns die. But the Lord Adonai never dies. So important. We saw the Lord seated. That's what he saw. He saw the Lord seated, not unsettled, not unsure, not being challenged. 
And you know, we're in an election year here in the United States, and I want to tell you, presidents come and go, but God can never be voted out or voted in. He's seated on his throne. He saw the Lord, and he was high, and he was lifted up. He was exalted. Any view of God that brings him down to our level is the wrong view of God. He's not like us at all. The train of his robe filled the temple. In his vision, all Isaiah saw had to do with God. Everything was either, a, was either God on the throne or the things happening around him or the building shaking because of him. Everything had to do with God. Now, folks, I want to tell you, our church is not a temple. This isn't the temple. This is the congregation. This is an assembly. But I wonder sometimes if God is at the center or something else. The way we do things, the methods in which we do things, the people who do the... Who's in the center? Who, who is it that is exalted, high, lifted up? He saw seraphim standing in attention. These glorious creatures were seen above the throne, standing, yet flying at attention. It puts me in mind of a hummingbird. You guys have seen hummingbirds. They're just the most fantastic creatures on earth. Their wings flip, just flap so fast, it's incredible. But they could just hover, just almost like they're standing still. That's what it puts me in mind. I hear these seraphim, and they've got this, this set of wings, six of them. Two of them they're using to fly. And they're just standing there, hovering, waiting for any command to be given. And so this special category of angels were especially equipped because they attend to the holiness of God. Here's what he saw. They each had six wings with two of them that covered their feet. Well, maybe they needed to do that because on their missions, they got in contact with unholy or unclean things or people. But I rather think this. I rather think they were covering their feet because they were on holy ground. You remember Moses and the burning bush and God's presence when he was standing there? He said, take off the sandals from your feet because the place that you're standing is holy ground. And I just want you to know that in God's presence, all ground is holy ground. Just let him be, be seen, acknowledged, and everything becomes holy. With two, they covered their feet. And then with two, they covered their faces. Maybe maybe in reverence or maybe because as God told Moses, nobody can see my face and survive. And how awesome is our God, folks. And we can be in the proximity of God, but we can never have the full revelation and live through it. No one can see God face to face and live, Moses was told. He was told that he saw the afterglow of God as he walked by, as he held his hand over his face and hit him in the cleft of the rock. No one can survive it. He is God, you know, we like to use the word awesome, don't we? This is awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, that was an awesome concert. It was an awesome touchdown in the ball game. It was an awesome dessert we had after an awesome dinner. But I just want to tell you a little something, Lord. We, gotta, we better reserve some things for God. You know who is awesome? God is awesome. Amen. Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. And so with two wings, covered their feet. And with two wings, they covered their faces. And with two wings, they flew. You know, God makes everything for a purpose. He outfitted these seraphim to stand ready, wings flapping, and to go and come at his command. And God made you and me for his own purpose as well. As long as your purpose and your will is at the center of your life and at the end of all of your efforts, then you're really not understanding what your purpose is for God. God made you for himself. He made me for himself. We have no wings, but we're to stand ready. 
Next, he, he not just see some sights, he heard some sounds. He heard incredible worship, verses 3 and 4. It says in one, it says in the, speaking of the seraphim, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Here is Isaiah having visions of God, and as he does, he hears this continual, repetitive praise, antiphonal praise uh, going on among the seraphim. And they're saying the same thing to each other over and over. They look to one another and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Over and over and over, they repeat it. They never stop. I'd like to hear your Bibles flapping this morning. Take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 4, if you would. Revelation chapter 4. Somebody said that the Baptist air-conditioned system is the flapping of the pages of the Bible. So if, you don't, if you're using your, your phone this morning, you're a silent flipper. All right, so Revelation 4, verses 6 to 8, but let me just read verse number 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings full of eyes round and, around and within, do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's Revelation chapter 4. Folks, this is thousands of years after Isaiah saw it. Those verses give a fuller description of the seraphim. But guess what? They are still praising God. They're still saying it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do we get a glimpse in our own mind's eye of the holiness, the purity, the incredible righteousness of God, that he has set a standard that is so far above every other standard? Do we understand that he is endless in purity, endless in moral righteousness? He is perfect. And that's the one Hebrews chapter says with whom we have to do and to whom we give an account. Holy, holy, holy. They give that fuller description. You know, let's never tire of giving God praise, of singing his praise, of praying and giving him glory. Don't complain about singing about the holiness and greatness of God. The seraphim spoke of his holiness. They said, holy, holy, holy. And again, when we're talking about God's holiness, we're talking about his absolute purity. He is unstained by sin and evil. He is perfect in every way, and he is perfectly good all the time. So why is it repeated three times? Well, somebody suggested that, well, there's a trinity. The Father is holy, the Son is holy, and the Holy Spirit is holy. Well, that's certainly true. But in the Scriptures, repetition usually means emphasis, This is antiphonal praise going on. They're answering back to one another. So here we have a seraphim and he he says to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And another one answers him, yes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you know that's the only, do you know that is the only single attribute of God in all the scripture that is spoken of in repetition three times? Never does the Bible say God is love, love, love. Never does the Bible say God is light, 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 truth, 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 mercy, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. Never. But he says he is holy, holy, holy. God is holy. See, Pastor Phil, what am I supposed to do with this? Just keep listening. The absence of a clear understanding of God's holiness is the reason for our shallowness. 
It is the reason for our weakness. It is the reason for our selfishness. It is the reason for our disobedience. We don't really understand how holy God is, and that's why we compromise with the world and with sin in our own lives. Because we're looking at each other, and we're not looking at God. The seraphim spoke of his glory. Psalm 19 is a beautiful passage. It talks about how the creation declares the glory of God and his greatness is the subject of the universe, macro and micro. And these are the two points of praise of the passage. God is holy and God is glorious. So with the psalmist today, we can say that we ought to make his praise glorious. <laughs> we, ought to, we ought to do the best we can with the strongest voice we have, with the best of our ability to make his praise glorious glorious, sing out honor of the honor of his name, make his praise glorious. Let me challenge the young people that are here today that love music. Let me challenge you to give yourself to preparation in order to be able in some way, in some church, in some place, or even among your friends to make his praise glorious. The temple shook. There's some more noise. The temple shook with the voices of their praise. Isaiah is watching and listening, and he's feeling it. The antiphonal praise of the seraphim, just four of them. There's only four of them, but the temple was shaking down to the foundation. You know what? It kind of gives new meaning to the idea that the place was rocking. But I, Isaiah's reaction was this. He, he didn't say, wow, I have seen the Lord. What a privilege. This is amazing. I'm the only one here. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to go on the road and tell everybody about it. That's not what he did. No. Third point, senses. Sight, sounds, and senses. He sensed his utter despair. He said, I am undone. Whoa. I am undone. It means ruined, devastated, destroyed, doomed, lost. Why is that? Well, he says, my words are wicked. My words are wicked. The Bible says that a perfect man is the one who can control his tongue and the words that come out of his mouth. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you ever sin with your tongue and your words? Isaiah did. I do. Do you know why our words are wicked or untrustworthy sometimes? Matthew records this, Jesus saying in verse 18 of chapter 5, those things which proceed out of the mouth, or chapter 15 in verse 18 says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Oh, I'm just so sorry I said that's not really me. This is a real famous thing today. We say something, lose our temper, get anger and do this. Oh, that's not really who I am. Sure it is. Because out of the abundance of the, the what speaks. Our words reveal our heart. Something else. My words were wicked, Isaiah said. And then he said, our words are wicked. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Folks, it's not okay to speak wickedly, to lie, to defame, to constantly criticize, to slander, to curse. Have you ever seen the degeneration of language to the point that it is today that in every conversation it's almost, it's almost expected, men, women, young, old, under every circumstance, and God forbid even some preachers saying in order to be more relevant they use cursing in the pulpit? Yeah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hey, God, I know you're holy and everything like that, but I really want to relate to them, so blankety blank, 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 blank. 
How's that with God? Our words are wicked. We dwell among people of wicked lips. Something else, our standard has been wrong. Oh, I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts, he said. This is something we really need to recognize. We need to measure our holiness or spirituality by, we, we tend to measure our holiness or spirituality by comparing ourselves with the people around us, even our Christian communities. We measure our holiness, our personal spirituality by looking at the people around us. Well, you know, there's Bill and Tom and there's Susie and, and there's Susanna and, you know, and I, they're doing this. And I'm, you know, I'm as good as they are and I must be doing okay. I must be holy. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And in that book, he calls what I just said, he calls it cultural holiness. That is, there's a level of, there's a degree of, there's a place of holiness that we rise to that we really don't go any further because we keep looking around at each other. The Bible says that when we compare ourselves among ourselves and measure ourselves by ourselves, we are not wise. Cultural holiness is not what God is talking about. Did you know what, folks? Did you know that we're not supposed to look at each other to determine our level of holiness? We are not called to look at the people around us. We are called to look at Jesus Christ, that we are called to conform. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for who he called, he destined and predestined to conform to the image of Christ. We will never sense the need for repentance as long as we compare ourselves to each other. We will never sense the deep, the deep sinfulness in ourselves until we get a look at the Lord. We need to sit with Isaiah and get a good look at the throne room. Number four, write the word down. There was sights and sounds and senses, and then there was salvation. He received deliverance, salvation in the sense of deliverance at that moment. Isaiah saw God as he is, and then he saw himself as he was. A sinner in a state of devastation and destruction. And folks, we are never closer to deliverance than when we recognize and admit the truth of our sinful condition. A few moments ago before I came in the auditorium and I don't know where she went. Uh, Shalene was sitting up here just a minute ago. Are you still in here, Shalene, anywhere? I went by the table out there and I challenge you to go by that little table that she has over there and it just, I mean, I just, my breath caught in my mouth as I looked at those little bitty images, those little bitty figures of a seven-week-old, a nine-week-old, and a three-month-old, and so on, of a little baby in its mother's womb. And I hear Christians and I hear so-called Christians that are in touch with this age saying we need to take another look at this idea of abortion. Maybe we've got it wrong. Psalm chapter 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb. Before we were ever thought of, God began working. We're not called to be like the people around us. We're called to be like Jesus. Isaiah saw God as he is, and he saw himself as he was, a sinner in state of devastation and destruction. And I look at us as a nation, and I look at us as a people, and I think of what we're doing to ourselves, and we're drugging ourselves, and we're drinking ourselves into stupors, and we're killing our babies, and we're putting old people into cages, and we're, we're thinking about euthanasia, and we're thinking about all these wicked, horrible, terrible things. And it's happening to Christians Stop looking around at the culture to get your measure of what is right and wrong and start looking at God. Amen. 
at the point of his sin, he was touched by a coal from the altar at the most sensitive place of the skin, the place of our skin and our anatomy that is used to show affection, the most tender and sensitive place. His lips, he was touched by a live burning coal. The coals were at the altar, a place of sacrifice for sin. He needed personal attention and he got personal, individual attention from this seraphim who pulled one of the, one of the coals from the altar and touched his lips with it. And folks, it just makes me want us to understand that dealing with my own sin is my issue. It's not a corporate issue. You can't be saved, be changed, or be revived on the basis of what's happening around you. It has to be personal and individual. And great revivals in groups start with a great revival in single individual people. People don't get saved in groups and repentance for believers happens one at a time. At the moment he touched, he was touched. <laughs> That the moment he was touched, his sin was removed and forgiven. I, all I can say to that is hallelujah. Sins are cleansed, removed, and forgiven. I'd love to develop this more, but let me add this, that we're talking about sins covering and removal. We are not kissing today. We're not, we're not living at that time, and we're not standing in the throne room. But we're not kissing a coal from the altar, but we are kissing the cross of Calvary. Oh, what a heinous picture it is, the cross, the crucifixion, the bloody, sinless Savior hanging there because of our sin. We need to run to the cross and kiss, as it were, the cross because it's the full measure of our sin was placed on him and he dealt with it there. And yes, even as believers, we need the cross. We need the cross. Then they're sending. So sights and sounds. Senses and salvation and sending. I, 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 I love this. You know why so many of us don't ever feel sent? Because we had never seen the Lord as he is. He was made ready for remission. Verses 8 and 9. There was a great change in the attitude and availability of Isaiah once he had seen the Lord. He got over his trust in Uzziah. And he was now trusting in the sovereign. Up until this point, it had all been, well, everything's going to be all right. We still got a good guy on the throne. And his administration is really good. As long as we can get the right person sitting in the White House, everything's going to be good. Look, guys, vote. Prepare yourself. Educate yourself. Vote. It's a privilege. But put your trust in God Amen. and not in man. Oh my, we need to look at the Lord. You know what he did? He heard the Lord calling. He heard the Lord calling him. Whom shall I send and who will go? And he didn't have to convince him of anything, Jesus, or God didn't at that point because his heart was now willing. And he said, send me. Here I am. I'm not hiding. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed. Send me. He said, go then. All of us have been sent, as we said, at the time of sowers, Back in the month of October, we've all been sent. But we're slow to go because we haven't gazed at the holiness of God. Pastor Phil, this is a little scary. How can we do this? I understand you. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. He dwells in inapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 16. He appeared to Moses in a fiery burning bush. He appeared on Mount Sinai in fire and thunderous sirens and billowing smoke. He dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat as a pillar of fire. He's going to return to judge the world and destroy the wicked with fire. 
But God also think about this. The Bible teaches that this three times holy God, this awesome God, this awful God, this powerful God, this, this un, unapproachable God was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was born to us. He dwelt with us. He lived and died for us. And he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You say, are you sure about that, Pastor? On the Mount of Transfiguration one day, he took the big three from the, from, the, uh, from the apostles and he went up on the mountain and he was transfigured before them. He pulled back the veil of his flesh and for just a moment, his brilliance and the effulgence of who he is, it shone forth and they couldn't do anything but just stare and fall on their knees. Listen to me this morning. Jesus wrapped up all of this holiness and came to us. We need to be fearful of God Almighty, but we need to be willing to approach God Almighty because he approached us. Jesus came to us. Isn't it wonderful we can know God? Isn't it wonderful that we can come into his presence? Isn't it wonderful that the throne room of God is a place where we can find grace to help in time of need? Isn't it wonderful? But do we go and look Do you think we need a revival? It won't happen without a proper view of God's holiness. We will just keep on trusting in man, presidents. We'll trust in congressmen and senators, in scientists, in generals, in the army, and in ourselves. Think about this and we'll be done. Something had to die for Isaiah to see the Lord. What needs to die in your life before you can see the Lord? An idea, a philosophy, an ambition, some desired relationship. What? What? What is it that needs to die? Second of all, God's holiness must be understood before our hearts will ever be humbled. Do you want to know God's holiness? Well, it's a pathway of humility. Because whenever Isaiah saw the Lord, the words out of his mouth weren't, hey, how cool. I'm going to tell everybody about it. No, no, no. The first words out of his mouth is, woe is me. I'm devastated. The next point, cultural holiness is worthless. Are you measuring yourself by the wrong standards? Let me see if I can illustrate. If I were to put 100 Steinway pianos, full-size concert pianos in this room, 100 Steinway pianos, the best of the best, and put them in this room and have them tune each, tune each one of those pianos to the piano next to them and just keep tuning with the pianos all around them. We would never get any kind of, we would have dissonant sounds. We wouldn't have any kind of consistency. They wouldn't be tuned right. The tone wouldn't be right. Nothing would be right because they're being tuned to each other. And the way to get those 100 Steinways tuned right is to have one single perfect pitch coming from the tuning fork and everybody tuned to that. And then we get the 100 in harmony. And the way that we as believers are going to find the unity and the usefulness and the holiness of life that God wants us to have is not by looking at each other and trying to compare ourselves with each other, but only looking at God. We get unified when we get purified. I'm just telling you this morning, let's stop trying to compare ourselves with people and let's start looking into the word of truth, the word of God on our knees.
I was reading a book by A.W. Tozer this week about searching for God, about desiring God, about knowing God, about wanting to know God's holiness. And I was reading it. And he talked about his own personal desire to know God. And the only way he found it is in on his knees, on his face, before the Word of God, regularly seeking the Lord and not seeking people. He sought the Lord. God is holy and he calls us to be holy. My question for you is, do you want it? Do you? I don't want to be too holy because if I'm too holy, then people, you know, they'll run off from me. See, there we go. Our world doesn't need us to fit in better. Our world needs to see that we have been with Jesus. Because what happened in Acts chapter 3 and 4? What happened when they took knowledge of these miracle workers who had healed the man at the temple gate? What did they say? They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. We need a heavy dose of the holiness of God. We need to look at it. We need to ask him to make us holy. Would you bow your heads? Father, this is just one of three. You have asked us to be holy, and next week we're going to talk about personal holiness. And if you've commanded it, it's achievable. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts today as we've talked about your holiness and help us to not get some sort of figment in our imagination about what you're like that is incorrect. But help us to recognize that you are perfect in holiness. And help us to look at you, Lord, so that we can understand ourselves. Father, I pray that as we continue in this, that you would begin a revival in our hearts, a revival in our spirit, a hunger and desire for holiness, a hunger and desire for righteousness. Oh, God, please make us holy. Please help us, Lord, to make make us holy so that we stand apart and somebody can even hear our witness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.